Welcome to the Alabama Literacy Network's podcast, which is designed to share information and best practices for literacy in the state of Alabama. We represent various groups working on literacy in the state. We hope to bring a wide variety of resources together to help school leaders, teachers, and parents so that all children read at high levels. We believe that literacy is a fundamental right that is tied to so many positive outcomes that we want for the citizens of Alabama. This podcast was brought to you by Brightspot Ed, LLC, an educational consulting company company based in Alabama, providing consulting, professional learning, evaluation services, and resources. Our goal is to highlight the good and replicate it across education. Check us out at brightspoted.com. I'm your host, Dr. Shelley Bell-Smith. Today, we will be talking to Ms. Rizvisha Hawkins, who advocates for better education for all students, but especially those who live in the Metro Nashville area. She is an author, blogger, and community activist. Having attended Metro Nashville Public Schools as a student. She was later a parent and staffer there. She now spends her time bringing attention to inequity and ways to overcome systemic issues around race, poverty, and low expectations of public education. Welcome, Visha Hawkins. Thank you for being here today. Thank you, Shelley. I, I am grateful that we connected through Twitter. I mean, it's pretty awesome, isn't it? It is. Uh, so can you start by telling our listeners how you became involved in this work of improving education? Yeah, so I've been uh, working, you know, professionally in in and around education for probably 25 years, first in nonprofit, and then I moved on, worked with the district. I believed when I went through college, I I believed that education was the thing that was going to get, that was literally going to free us and, and us meaning black people. And I still believe that to a certain degree, I've had some, you know, uh, some different perspectives in how our public system, public education system works and how it doesn't work for certain populations, which, you know, has motivated my fight, which keeps me at this every day. I love it. So what barriers have you encountered in this work and how have you addressed those barriers? Oh, wow. That is such a great question because the barriers are politics. The barrier, the barrier is politics, right? Like the barrier is that people can take something as basic as the right to read and politicize it, make it into a partisan issue even. The same thing, I'm a big choice advocate. To me, it is so basic that a family should be able to choose a school that best fits their need. That is, to me, is just the most basic thing ever. But it is probably the most contentious issue (laughs) for school boards, for state legislatures. Like, it is amazing to me. So to me, the barrier is how people politicize children and what children deserve. I agree. So much with that. I really love, I mean, I love what you wrote about talking education like we talk football because (laughs) Alabama is pretty similar to Tennessee and how much we value football. In fact, one of my favorite quotes uh, is a paraphrase of Jocelyn Jackson's Gods in Alabama. And the beginning of it is there are gods in Alabama and football is one of them. I feel like Tennessee is pretty close to that. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about this article? And I'm going to repost it when I post this podcast because it's fabulous. 
Oh, thank you so much. Well, we're a football family here. We and we just kind of follow along with whatever my husband does. So he loves Tennessee. We love Tennessee. He loves Pittsburgh Steelers. We love Pittsburgh Steelers. But he is also a 15 year, 20 year, 20 year. My, my, my only son is 27. So he's a 20 year little league football coach. So we start the season on a little league field and then we we last until Super Bowl. Uh, <laughs> we are no joke. So I just had an opportunity now that I just go to games just to literally watch and not be like this because my son is on the field because my nerves were always so bad and I was running up and down the field with them. I was a mess. But so now I can just watch the game, right, with no skin in the game. <laughs> You know, I was also, so everything was kind of happening at the same time, right? I was noticing how, you know, into the games, the parents are, like they were at the games, they were fighting, passionate. And then also I was in the throes, like the whole literacy thing was new to me at the time when I wrote that. And I thought, man, what if we were this fired up about literacy? What if we, when I said, what if, can we talk about education like we talk about football, right? Can we, because I am a football talker. Like I am going to say, dude, did you see them run over that dude? You know, like I'm going to talk trash. Like football to me is like where people are the most real, the most authentic. And I just, what if we tell, what if we tell parents about it just in a real Real way? What if we talk about it like in the media in a real way? So anyway, it was it was a lot going on in that uh, <laughs> in that article. But football is so like you said, it's so huge in the South. And so it just made sense to me. I mean, I was just really fired up when I wrote that. Just really fired up. I've been that parent on the sideline, thankfully just baseball and basketball and, and golf <laughs> where you are not allowed to cheer. But the thing that really struck me about that article was just that that cultural focus of what's important. And yeah. so parents will pay for a private coach to get a skill better They'll pay for clinics. They'll pay for specialized equipment because it's important. And then how do you get people to care about literacy like that? And so that was what I took away from that article. Um, yeah. and, and so that, you know, that is my my goal is for people to care about literacy, about my kid reading at grade level like they do that little league football game. And like I told you before we started the podcast, you know, I have realized since that article, and I think it was in 2018, or, but I have realized since writing that, that blog that, you know, and this is what we were talking about, like not all parents realize where their children are. And, you know, I have never met a, a parent that doesn't care about their kids. For most everybody that I've met wants what's best for their children, everybody. So where I am now in my, my journey on this is, that 85% of Black kids in Nashville are reading below grade level. 100% of those parents don't know that. Probably not even 80%, 85% of those parents don't know that. Like, I'm sure just a small, everybody thinks their children can read. And they think that because of their report cards, right? Because report cards are out of sync with the standardized test. And then we can go into the evils of standardized testing, but the standardized testing lets people know, good or bad, where their children are. Also, what I was thinking about at that time was how important coaches are and what role they could possibly bring in literacy. I believe life would be different. <laughs> I, tr 
truly believe that. Probably could have been a series. It could be a series, right? There are so many angles to that that could correct the situation we find ourselves. Absolutely. You know that I am very drawn to your work with communities of color, and we talk a lot about equity and closing gaps, but to your point, it goes so much deeper just than closing those gaps. And again, the people who are affected the most are sometimes the most silent. Do you have any thoughts on how we overcome that? Yeah. So with Emily Hanford, first hard words, then the second one, and then what the Words say was the third. So hard words is what what got me into this. So in my role at Metro Schools, I was the board liaison, board administrator. So I was the liaison between the director of schools, which is our superintendent that we call it director of schools, the the liaison between the director of schools and the nine elected school board members. So that was my role. So I I went to every board meeting over a 10-year period. I listened to every report that came through, which hundreds, hundreds of reports. But it wasn't until I left the district. I left the district in 2014. I started blogging in 2016. The next year, the standardized test scores came out in October 2017. And that's when I was just blown away, right? Like I had listened to all those reports. I had seen all those graphs, but it was only when I took it upon myself to to mine through that data and really see what that means without someone spinning it, without someone telling me what, yeah, these are the numbers, but that that's not really the numbers. Like it was the reports were always spun. So it wasn't until then that I realized we are in a crisis and no one is talking about it. When uh, Michelle Alexander talks about the school to prison pipeline, people say it without, I think, without really understanding that that pipeline is real. (laughs) It is so real and fatal to lives, whether they're alive or dead, right? You can still be alive and basically be dead on paper because you can't read, you've been in prison forever, and nobody's going to give you a chance. So so where I am, you know, how can we get to parents who are being affected the most? Well, this is part of it, right? Um, Because I I mean, first there has to be, in my mind, there has to be some education and that it can be the hardest thing. It can be the hardest thing. I was talking to a group of parents last night. It can be the hardest thing to say, because what I said was 85% of Black kids are not reading on grade level. It's 20 of y'all right here. (laughs) That means... 2.5 of y'all are only reading on grade level, right, of your kid. I mean, that is so real. And people don't realize that, that, yeah, this may mean you. This may mean your child does not read. It probably is you. And so nobody is talking to parents like that. You know, our parents trust the system. They trust that the system is going to do what's best for their children. And we know... We know. I mean, we just have the receipts to prove that that's not the case. We got the receipts. We got the receipts, Shelly. I just applaud you because I agree so much that if parents did know, they would rise up and demand better. I know that you've really come under fire for advocating for choice, uh, which includes charter schools. Can you talk a little bit about the evolution of charter schools in Nashville and how the collaboration between public charters and traditional public schools can help all students? Have I come under fire for advocating for charters? Wow. (laughs) I did not know that. Yeah, I do not care about that. Yeah. But 
you know, the charter school situations, we, you know, we got our first charter school here, I think in 2001, that charter school still in existence. KIPP uh, was the first charter management organization we got. And I remember I was working with the district and I visited the first KIPP here and was blown away by what they were offering. And at the time, my son was in middle school. They were in middle school. And they were My son was in middle school, but I couldn't attend there because it was uh, based on your address. And I didn't live in the zone that allowed you to go there. But I was so impressed with what they offered. And even though I was working for the district and, you know, I've just never really understood. Again, to me, it's one of those politicized things. If you don't want to go to a charter school, don't. <laughs> I mean, it's just really that simple. But, and I'll, I'll give you an example. We have 21 schools in Nashville that are on the list for priority schools. And the priority schools are the schools that perform in the bottom 5% of the state. Now, people say there will always be a bottom 5%. I agree. But here's what's a little different about that 5%. Many of those schools are schools that I went to in the late 70s that failed me and my friends. So that's what's different about that bottom 5%. And if the bottom 5% is going to always be the schools in the Black communities, in the Brown communities, we've got a serious problem that we need to acknowledge and, and no one wants to acknowledge that. So because we have those serious issues where people like families like mine, where I had a single mom, we were poor, it was my, myself, my little sister, and my little brother. If we are constantly tethered, assigned to the lowest performing schools with the lowest resources, with the teachers with the least experience, then why not give us some options? Give us some options. We may still choose the school we're, we're assigned to, but give us some options. And to me, there is no partisanship to that. That is give the kids the best that they have access to. Let's just give them access to excellence. And and, the, and that to me is not political. And if I, if I got to burn in hell for that, then put me on there. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> and I agree completely. Uh, I don't think you're going to burn in hell, thankfully. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you. I don't, want, I don't want to either, but I yeah. mean. <laughs> and as someone who... Uh, and we don't really have a lot of charter schools in, in Alabama, but I worked for a school system where my children attended. I pulled one of them out and put my daughter in a, in a magnet school in another district. And that was fiercely unpopular. In fact, I had yes. fellow administrators <laughs> come up to me and say, I think they need to fire you. It really is not about the politics. It's about the right of every parent to do the best they can for their child, because that is my kid and it's their future that we're dealing with. I love that you are unapologetically a voice for parents and their children. Absolutely. Why do you think that concept is so hard for some educators to embrace? That is a great question because I was what I was going to say as you were telling me your terrible story about people judging you for doing what's best for your child. And here's what's really interesting about that, Shelly. Like you didn't you didn't leave the district, right? I mean, like you didn't leave the public education school system like a great percentage of our educators do. And they have a right to do. If they don't want public education for their children, 
but think it's okay for your children because it allows them to make the six-figure salary, so be it. We all do what's best for kids, but a lot of people, school board members included, like in my mind, if you are against charters, you are against magnets, which you have put your children into. Magnet is choice. And actually it's, it's a selective choice, right? Like everybody can't even get in. People want to protect, listen a lot to Chris Stewart, who's over Brightbeam, and he is so honest. <laughs> and But he talks about uh, people wanting to protect their pensions. And, and that has been my experience. I've just never voiced that like that, but that has been my experience. You want to protect your livelihood. The untruths about charters make people think that the district is owed the money attached to children's back, right? In Nashville, it's like $10,700. And the district thinks that belongs to them. It belongs to whatever situation the child wants to put himself in, right? I believe in, it's not real freedom. It's not real educational freedom, really. But I do believe in a degree of educational freedom, which is, Shelly, if you want to put your child in a magnet school, my God, do it. Yeah. And it was a good choice for her. And it was a good choice for us. It's a lot of blaming parents for a lot of different reasons. We blame parents for sending their kids to school uh, unprepared. We blame parents for not working with kids at home enough or getting them a private tutor when they're behind. Mm. Uh, And I know that you've talked about this blaming parents some. How do you deal with that? How do you help parents learn to deal with this tendency for educators to blame parents for their children's poor performance? Oh, and it's not just educators. It is society, right? So So if teachers are doing it, they're taking their cues from their administrators and the administrators is taking their cues from school board members. And I mean, seriously, it is a society issue. And, you know, I was watching a Facebook show with parents this week and, you know, I just put in the the comments like I will never believe again that a child can't learn how to read in school without any other things happening because it happened for me, you know, no one read to me. No one, I, I didn't, <laughs> certainly didn't go to the best schools, lived in the worst neighborhoods. And somehow I got, probably had one great teacher that really poured into me. I learned to read. I still struggled with comprehension by fifth grade. So I had to work on that. But like I had never had problems with phonics, never decoding. I could read really fast. So the point is, is a child can go to school to read uh, and, and it doesn't have to be the parent's fault. You know, I always, all these images in my mind, right, of, of parents that I've talked to or grandparents, even my aunt, who is a grandparent who's raising her nine-year-old grandson, who is a struggling reader herself. She goes to the school when she absolutely has to, like for a conference or something, but she's nervous about it. She thinks people think she's dumb. She represents so many parents and grandparents out there. You may not ever see them, but at home, they are making sure, you know, they are feeding them. They are getting their clothes together. They're making sure they got their stuff. They may not be all involved in the, you know, in the homework because they themselves didn't get it. 
Now I talk about generational failure too. And, and I see it, I, I see it so often right now because now that I'm a grandmother, I see, you know, my peers and their children and then their children's children. It's really sad, but it motivates me. So to be very clear, you've also talked about parents doing their part. Yes. Uh, And so I do want to make sure people know that that you really are focused on achieving that balance between not blaming people, holding them accountable. Can you talk a little bit about that? So I do that with love (laughs) because society is so hard on Black parents specifically, and I will get emotional with this. Anytime I get a chance to talk to, whether it's a family member or a friend or, you know, parents I work with, like I, I don't tweet this stuff. I don't put this stuff publicly, but my personal commitment is to be <laughs> like a grandmother, right? To love, to cheer, to say what you're doing right. And then to educate, I choose my words carefully again, this, the world is hard on us. And they don't need me to be hard to. So, (laughs) um, but I do believe in accountability. I believe in accountability with love. Yeah, I I agree. And that's not a color issue. That's just, it's it's hard to be a parent. It's hard to raise a child and, and know what in the world you're doing. They don't come with manuals and Life certainly doesn't come with a manual. And so I do think we approach people with a sense of of grace. Absolutely. Grace. That is a great word. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and I just know as a school principal, you know, my children came through my own school. And oh really? Yes. Uh and and it didn't happen a lot here. Uh well, (laughs) I moved to this community. I brought them with me and then we moved here when I became the principal. And so I understood as a parent what it felt like for my child to experience those things. And so I think grace is to me what I hope that I communicated to people whose children were in my school. And anyway, I know that you and I both believe that literacy is essential to changing the trajectories of students' lives, especially those living in poverty. Uh, You've been critical of the progress made in Tennessee in terms of students reading on grade level. What are your thoughts on what's working well and what's not working? So again, I think one of the barrier is politics. I can't speak for all of Tennessee. I'm grateful we have this program in Tennessee that is focused on the science of reading and it is in some of our smaller districts and is doing great things. Now we have the Tennessee legislation, got this literacy law that is really promising. I'm just cautiously optimistic. When Candace McQueen was our commissioner, I was so bought in, hook, line, and sinker. She was, literacy is the civil rights issue of our time. I was, yes, you're right. I was so passionate about that. They had a goal of 50% of third graders would be reading on grade level by 2025. And which lets you know how low we were (laughs) when that was set. (laughs) 
but that went away. You know, it went away with Commissioner McQueen. And so you know, we have all these really promising things happening right now. And I, I'm afraid it's going to go away with Commissioner Penny Schwinn or Governor Bill Lee. So I'm cautiously optimistic, but we do have some great things going on. This uh, We have an organization here called SCORE, and they're, they're a policy organization, but they've gotten into the literacy game and they've done some really amazing things. And I'm going to say some names, Robin McClellan, who's a favorite. She's the Sullivan County Elementary School Supervisor. It's a smaller district, but they've really gotten into this program focused on the science of reading. So we do have some great things going on. That hasn't trickled down or trickled over to Nashville, which is, you know, the second largest district in Tennessee. And I'm not sure about Shelby County, which is Memphis, which is the largest uh, district in Tennessee. Cautiously optimistic is all I'm going to (laughs) say. Well, we'll just keep checking back and seeing what the progress looks like. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Now, I think if you're interested in about learning about literacy, this literacy issues, then I would recommend you listen to Emily Hanford's Hard Words first. It, you know, it literally changed my life and changed my my advocacy. I mean, completely changed my advocacy. You know, first I was 100% choice, just going hard on choice, but I have scaled back significantly. I think it was Frederick Douglass's slate owner who said, you get him to read, he'll be unfit to be a slave. And so I believe that. I I believe you will be free and on a trajectory for for adult success. So, So Emily Hanford's Hard Words, if you have any ideas about how we can make reading as important as football, let's talk about it. <laughs> Ooh, I think we might get rich if we could ever harness people's passion for football into literacy. And so maybe maybe that is uh, where you and I go next. But well, I have a friend, Sonia Thomas, who's uh, she's the leader of our Nashville Propel, which is a parent group here in Nashville, which is and she was in what the words say. She was highlighted in what the words say. And she's a huge Alabama fan. So <laughs> I cheer for Auburn because that's where my children okay. attend school. So I'll say oh, we're oh, equal. All right. All right. But I love Sonia Thomas. She's the mad like Sonia. Yes. <laughs> and so I really yes. appreciate her too. But I appreciate what you're doing for kids and families and for being with us here today. Thank you so much. I mean, this has been a pleasure. I mean, you you made this easy for me. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Join us again next week for the next episode of the Alabama Literacy Network's podcast. <laughs>